really had to work hard on teamwork because we attempted to do something so difficult that we really could not do it by ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, kids learn pretty early to handle lines. So if you're coming into a marina, you hand a kid a coil of line and you know one an adult is an adult is steering the boat one of them is you know at the lifelines kids are holding fenders to keep that's how you keep the boat from hitting the dock Welcome to the Crossing It Off podcast, where we believe living with intention through a bucket list lifestyle is a great way to bring yourself personal joy. As you are crossing items off your list, you're actually filling up your bucket. The more items you cross off, the more joy gets added, until eventually your joy spills over into the lives of those around you. My name is Roger Williams, and as the host of this show, I will be interviewing guests, people just like you, that are crossing items off their own bucket list. My hope is that by hearing these stories, you will be inspired and empowered to cross items off your own bucket list. When you find something impactful for your journey, we invite you to share the episode with one other person and leave an honest rating or review of the show. This is an amazing way for you to gift those feelings of inspiration and joy to others. Now let's start crossing it off together. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Crossing Off Podcast. I'm excited to bring my guest on here in a little bit. You know, sailing is something that a lot of people like to do, but I think she did it with a little bit of a twist and she's going to explain that to us. Her name is Tanya Hackney and she describes herself as an author, a wife of 25 years, a homeschool mom of five and a live aboard sailor. Tanya, thank you for joining us. Hi, Roger. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great that you're here with us. Tell us, what did you cross off your list? Sail the Caribbean with five children. Okay. And so are we talking about a cruise ship or are you, uh, are the five kids the crew? Uh, the, the five kids are the crew and we <laughs> live aboard a 48 foot sailing catamaran. Okay. So let's, let's jump back before you started crossing this off. What was life like for you and your children and your, your husband or, or spouse, what, what was life like before you started doing this? And, and what was the impetus for making this decision to put this on a list and cross it off? Well, we used to be yuppies in Atlanta. We lived in a little house with a white picket fence. And we had the 2.5 children and the two cars in the driveway. And both of us had jobs and we lived kind of a normal life. Uh, we had gone sailing with my husband's parents when we were newlyweds, and it had really made a big impression on us. So my husband grew up sailing. And at some point, we just said, the American dream is not for us. Felt a little bit more like uh, the American nightmare. <laughs> so everyone would just buy, you know, bigger things and move further outside the city. And uh, we decided to completely move outside the box. So we went uh, back to Florida where our families were, and ultimately made a five-year plan, sold our house, bought a boat, moved aboard with four kids under eight, and then later had a fifth kid. Okay. I, I need to, to go back a little bit and just, you know, you talk about this American dream that, that were sold, I think, uh, through, through systems. And what was it about that that, didn't, that you said, we got to do something different? Well, I guess if anything, we were a little too successful and we were successful really early. So we had started our marriage uh, in 1993. We were 22 and we had $50,000 in debt. And we, we had read this book, Larry Burkett's Complete Financial Guide for Young Couples. And he 
gave us a roadmap for getting out of debt. And so for two years, we lived in a dumpy apartment, focused all of our income and all of our energy on paying off um, debt. And within, I don't know, two, four years, I think we had paid it all down enough that we could buy a house and stop putting, you know, money into the rent. And at some point in the next few years, we paid off all of our cars, all of our school loans, all of our personal debts, and we were living debt free, you know, in Atlanta. And we started to look around us and we realized that everybody around us had nicer cars, took nicer vacations, dressed nicer. Mm. And we were like, how are these people doing this? And we realized that everybody around us was deeply in debt. And a lot of our friends were selling their starter homes and moving further out into the suburbs, you know, into the McMansions and buying their first Mercedes Benz. It didn't look that exciting to us. Now we tried to get out of our starter home. We looked into a, another house in a nicer neighborhood with a Starbucks around the corner and really big yard for the kids. And we started to fill out the paperwork to put an offer in on this house. And at the end of the weekend, we were supposed to meet with the broker the next morning on Monday morning. By Sunday evening, both of us had said to each other, we should not do this. Hmm. This is a trap. It's a trap. If we do this now, we'll never, ever go sailing. We will be like locked in on this 30-year mortgage and we might never get the guts up, you know, to, to do something different. So was the sailing a part of that? Was, was that like the drive? Is that we were you going in that direction already, or was, or was just this whole lifestyle that you were living in, kind of illuminating that you wanted to do something different? So the sailing had always been a part of our lives. We had grown up in Florida. We're high school sweethearts. My husband used to race sailboats on the weekends. His family owned a sailboat, and he spent his childhood summers gun calling. They call it in the Florida Bay and the Florida Keys, and. the sailing bug had bit him early. And I, of course, had had this trip. Uh, We were newlyweds and had gone with his parents on on this sailing trip. And I had, you know, realized what an amazing lifestyle this could be. So we kept that dream alive. We would read sailing magazines and Cruising World magazine. And he would race sailboats on Lake Lanier, um, north of Atlanta, one night a week. So the sailing dream we had kind of kept alive. And we, the first phase was move back to Florida. We needed to downsize and get back to where we could even start thinking about that. So the sailing dream was absolutely always a part of of leaving suburbia, but we were going to leave Atlanta either way because we wanted to be near our our families. Sure. So you get to the point, you're like, okay, we're going to sell everything. We're going to hop on this boat. First thing that pops into my mind, especially with small children or, or four children, what was their level of excitement or non-excitement about the prospect of living on this boat and going places? Did they fully grasp it or did they, or they just go along? Were they, you know, how were their reactions to this decision that you and your husband made? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, It was 2007, December of 2007. So almost 15 years ago. And we had found this boat take two over in Fort Lauderdale. We were living in Clearwater, And we decided to drive across and look at the boat. And if it was going to be a family endeavor, we decided that we should take the kids with us. And so we packed four kids under the age of seven into our minivan and drove across to Fort Lauderdale. And we weren't really intimidated because we were like, well, we don't have to buy a boat. We just have to put kids in car seats and drive a couple hours. So anybody can do that. We don't have, you know, we're not committing to anything. So we drove across, we took Jay's dad and stepmom with us because we wanted a second opinion. And then we let the kids crawl 
all over the boat and just start thinking about what that would be like. They had been to the Miami boat show, so they had grown up around sailboats and, you know, they kind of knew what, well, no, they didn't really know. They thought they knew what they were getting into and they thought, you know, this was like a big playground, that it was a big adventure, that they were going to be like little pirates. So uh, if you could fast forward and kind of show them what life would really be like, I think there might be a couple of them that would have opted out at that point. <laughs> Four kids younger than seven, they just thought it was a big adventure and they were all in. The youngest was, I was still carrying him around in a baby backpack. So he doesn't actually remember life on land. So this is the wow. only home he's ever known. Wow. That's interesting. I, we moved from place to place and he really grew up in Southern California where there are no thunderstorms. We moved back to Ohio in the Midwest and that first season of some thunderstorms, he like freaked out. He was like, what is this? This is crazy. So I have a little bit of an idea of what that looks like. So what were some of the things that concerned you and your husband? I mean, you were all gung ho about doing this, but there had to be some things that you're like, okay, but how are we going to do this? And how are we going to do that? What were some of those things that you thought maybe would be the most difficult challenges for you as you move forward with this lifestyle? There were a lot of obstacles. Probably the biggest one was our own fear. Um, the fear of leaving the beaten track, the fear of not fully funding our 401k, <laughs> the fear of, you know, leaving a secure land base, uh, the fear that one of our kids would fall overboard and die. I mean, when you're on the ocean, dying is is a real risk. Like you are mm. never, you never feel more fully alive than when you're sailing through a thunderstorm. I mean, it's really a nice edge sometimes. And so we were kind of aware of that. And we had read all of these uh, survival at sea books. We're, <laughs> we're kind of like worst case scenario junkies. <laughs> Um, and, we had, <laughs> no, and we mitigated as many risks as we could, but there were real risks and there were real fears. And we had to kind of work through those one, one by one. When we finally did put an offer on the boat, um, my husband was on a business trip and we had reached this point of no return. And I had been alone for a few days and I had started like getting cold feet. And I called him up. I changed my mind. We should not do this. We have a perfectly wonderful life. Why would we ditch a perfectly wonderful, safe life for this incredibly risky endeavor? And you could hear him just like so frustrated on the phone. He was like, woman, I need your support. <laughs> and, um, and then I called a good friend of mine and she kind of talked me off that ledge and I slept on it. He told me to sleep. My husband had told me to sleep on it. And when I woke up the next morning, I felt better. And I, called him back and I was like, okay, we can do this. And we can always sell the boat, right? We can always uh we can sure. always back out of it. It was not very realistic. It's a 30-year-old wooden boat. Nobody, well, nobody else wanted it. <laughs> but we could at least, you know, tell ourselves it's not permanent. Right. We can try it. Yeah. Just take take the chance. That's good. That's a good mindset to have as you're going forward, especially with something as huge as this, crossing that off your list. Tell me about so, so you buy the boat and then it's just like, did you have an itinerary? Did you just say, we're just going to, you know, go south and see what happens? Like, what were the goals as far as actually sailing for you all, especially those first couple of years when the kids weren't really full crew members yet? Right, exactly. Um, 
we moved aboard with babies. It was crazy. I don't even know what we were thinking. I look back at it now and sometimes you just do things when you're in the moment mm -hmm. and then you look back and realize that you did something totally amazing. You maybe didn't feel amazing at the time, but I certainly look back at those old pictures of like people in diapers, you know, crawling around on deck and think, no wonder people thought we were crazy. <laughs> we baby stepped everything. We did not go in over our heads. I'm a person that is kind of like all or nothing. So I probably would have burned out if we if we had done it my way, where we just like take the plunge, untie the dock lines and go sailing. I, I probably would have gotten emotionally overwhelmed and burned out. Sure. But my husband is a very steady person. And so he was really helpful in I would have a crazy idea and he would say, okay, well, what do we have to do to make that work? And then he would break it down into the smaller steps. Mm. And so we took we took baby steps. The first year that we bought the boat, we actually did not sell our house immediately. We kept the house and the boat simultaneously so that we could spend three or four days on the boat, three or four days at home and sort of adjust slowly. The boat needed a lot of work to make it family friendly and to make it to make it work. It was an old boat, so a big project. And that that year gave us a chance to really feel what it was going to be like. We did an experimental month where we just lived aboard for one month at the dock. And then when that worked out, we moved onto the boat full time. Then we sold the house because, you know, didn't have wow. to worry about cleaning up after, five, you know, four children to try and, you know, have people coming in to look at the house buyers and stuff. So that worked out really well. And then after the year at the dock, we started, you know, we had been taking longer and longer trips, weekend trips, anchoring out, going, um, going further afield for a Thanksgiving trip. And then eventually we were just ready. You know, it took, it took time. It wasn't something where we know people much crazier than we are that, you know, pulled their kids out of public school, bought a boat and crossed the Atlantic ocean. We are not those people. I would say we are cautious adventurers. Here at the Crossing It Off podcast, we are passionate about inspiring you in your bucket list lifestyle and empowering you to live out your list. We offer many resources to assist you in your bucket list journey, such as web resources in the show notes, bucket list mentoring services, my book, Live Out Your Lists, a private Facebook group for you to share your bucket list success stories with others, and more. All of these can be found at crossingitoffpodcast.com. Find the resource that fits your need so that you can live out your list. Now back to the show. Well, no, that's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> Especially after what you said, 15 years that you've been doing this, that sounds like that was a, a good step to take. I think How yeah, did... my husband helped make it sustainable. I would have, yeah. yeah, I probably would have killed myself by now. <laughs> if it had been like if I, if I'd done it the crazy way. And so what is life like for the kids as far as school and responsibilities on the boat? And then what's life like for you and your husband as far as, because I'm assuming you, you both still kind of do something to, to sell your labor, but that you're also on the boat. So how, how do those two things work? So we knew from the beginning that if we were going to make this dream work, that, uh, one of us was going to have to homeschool the kids and one of us was going to have to keep working in order to feed the children and keep repairing the old boat. And so my husband became a digital nomad. He had been a computer consultant and a database engineer, and he'd had a brick and mortar job, but he had begun to pull out of the brick and mortar and get more and more into what he could do um, from a distance. And so he was able to work from home. And then I had been an elementary school teacher, so I was the logical choice for homeschool mom. 
it is actually not at all like teaching public school. I had to unlearn everything that I had been taught. So homeschooling, as many people now know, since the pandemic is, it is not easy. It's no. probably the hardest part of what we do. Um, and I love curriculum design and I loved being able to do all these like amazing field trips that we did, but the actual like sitting down in the morning and making your child learn long division or something, that part is just not that much fun. So we do, you know, mornings were for the things that I thought that they needed. And then afternoons were for individual pursuits, the things that they wanted to learn. And so we kind of were able to split that half and half. And then of course the field trips were out of this world, just amazing. Sure. Any day that there was something cool to do, like hike up a volcano or, you know, go to an old Spanish fort or something, that was school for the day. There was no sure. pushing pencils on that day. And there were many, many of those days. Was there a specific age, like when the kids like transitioned from I'm on the boat to I'm helping, you know, be a member of the crew, as I, as I joked earlier, was there a specific age or is that just, have they always been helpful or is it, you know, how do you go about doing this thing as a family, right? The, 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 because most people just live in a house and everybody just goes to their rooms. At least that was for me. And everybody had their iPads and everybody had their computers and TVs and everybody just did their own thing. How do you divvy up chores? How did you decide when kids were ready for certain things? So in our family, you are, um, you are part of the chore chart at age three. So at age three, you can wash windows, you can help clear the table after dinner, you can put away the forks and spoons in the drawer, and you can fold towels. So those are kind of the early, early chores and everyone helps. And there, we really had to work hard on teamwork because we attempted to do something so difficult that we really could not do it by ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, kids learn pretty early to handle lines. So if you're coming into a marina, you hand a kid a coil of line and, you know, one, an adult is, an adult is steering the boat. One of them is, you know, at the lifelines, kids are holding fenders to keep, that's how you keep the boat from hitting the dock. Mm -hmm. They look like, you know, big rubber pillows. So everybody helps from a very early age. I would say younger than three, if we're coming into a dock or we're getting ready to anchor, we basically like close the sliding glass door and don't let the kid outside. <laughs> you're, you know, we don't want you on deck because you're a liability, but any, anything older than three or four and you're there with a parent, you know, learning the ropes, literally learning literally. the ropes. <laughs> yeah. And by age 10 or 11, you can start taking a night watch. So if we're sailing overnight, say um, more than a night or two and you're doing watches 24 hours, then an older kid can take take a seat in the cockpit chair and they can use the binoculars to scan the horizon. They can keep an eye on the chart plotter. They can wake up a grown-up if they see lights that they don't, you know, if they're not sure about what lights they're seeing. So a grown-up would sort of sleep in the cockpit when a kid was in the chair, but you could start giving them really big responsibilities. I think my son was 12 or 13, my oldest, um, the first time he took a watch by himself at night. And he is the one who steered us into the Chesapeake Bay. And I was wow. asleep in the cockpit and he woke me up. He was like, hey, we're, we're at the entrance of the bay. And we had asked him like, wake us up when it's time to come <laughs> in. We didn't want him to hit any of the entry markers or like we needed to know when that turn happened. And he had done it by himself. Like he woke me up and we were passing the markers as, as I woke up. So he did a great job. But I mean, he had a real responsibility and there were real risks associated with that responsibility. So very confidence building. 
Yeah, no doubt. So on the backside of that, how many have become teenagers since you've been on the boat? So my oldest, my oldest two are 21 and 20, and they are, they are now independent. I have a daughter who's 18, a son who's 15, and then my baby who was born while we lived aboard is 11. And so how has the transition into being a teenager um, worked out for being on the boat like that and homeschooling? And has that caused any angst and teenagers are angsty just as they are, you know, let alone putting them on a boat? What, what has that been like for you all? So actually, when we, we finally took a big leap and we left for the Caribbean in 2016, and at the time we had a 14, 13, 11, 9, and 4-year-old. And so most of the older kids enjoyed their teenage years while we were traveling full-time, island hopping, uh, spending a hurricane season in Grenada, spending a hurricane season in Panama. We spent a whole year traveling through Panama um, and then another year in Central America, working our way up to Guatemala. So they kind of grew up in a very unusual way. There was no learning to drive. There was no, there were no cell phones. We did a year without screens. So like a whole year with no video games. And we would only do like family movie night once a week or something. So they had a very unconventional teenagehood, I guess. And they probably they probably missed some important milestones, but I don't think they realized it until we got back. And when we got back, our oldest was almost 18. And then there was, you know, 17, 15, 12 and eight, I think, something like that. And so when we got back and they were suddenly thrown into this reverse culture shock, it was really difficult. It was really difficult. They started to realize that they had missed some milestones. I taught three teenagers to drive at the same time. (laughs) I mean, they would take turns. They weren't all in the driver's seat at the same time, but it was like one in the driver's seat and then two backseat drivers. Or we would have them you know, drive one around the block, and then it was somebody else's turn. And they all caught up, actually, they got their first cell phones, they, my two boys, um, both had their had their first girlfriends and their first heartbreaks. Um, The oldest kids were not interested in going to school, but they were very interested in getting college credit. So they ended up going straight from homeschooling K through 12, to doing dual enrollment classes at the local community college which for me was such a relief until the day that they passed that college entrance exam. I still didn't know, like, did we do a good job? Did we do a bad job? Did we ruin their lives? Are they going to be okay? Um, And they were fine. They, they did catch up with their peers to some degree. I don't think that they will ever be normal. I don't think that they are kind of fit for living in a box or working in a cubicle, but I don't know that that's a bad thing. They nope. didn't really fully reintegrate, and I, I don't feel bad about that. Yeah, I wouldn't. I think that's a, I think it's an amazing prospect for those kids and and the lives that they're going to lead going forward. What is something that was transformational for you about this experience? How have you changed? I wrote a whole book about it, so it's hard <laughs> to pick one thing. I mean, it was, it was an amazing school. The last fifteen years have changed me dramatically. I am not at all the same person 
that I was 15 years ago or that I would have been if we'd stayed in the house with the white picket fence. Probably the most important thing that happened was a sense of being in the world as a human being and not as a citizen of one country or another. I think the friendships that we made internationally, not just with the other sailors. I mean, we have friends that we made that are from Sweden, they're from Norway, they're from France, they're from Germany, they're from Great Britain, they're, you know, from everywhere. And they would meet up in in various ports in the Caribbean, um, not just the sailors, but also the local people that we made friendships with. And the places where we volunteered because we realized pretty quickly that we had something to offer as well as something to gain from the experience. We were not tourists. That's an important distinction because everywhere we go where there's a, a cruise ship port, it's like it's the same emerald shop in mm -hmm. every cruise ship shopping village. And people go to these islands and they maybe do an outing and then they say, well, I've been to Bonaire. And I'm like, well, you sort of, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you got the veneer of, of Bonaire, but if you live in Bonaire for, you know, a month and you do all these field trips and you meet locals and you dig a little bit deeper, or, you know, even if you get a chance to volunteer somewhere, you get a completely different picture of what a place is like. And you definitely scratch the surface. So that was an amazing experience for me to understand the kinship that all human beings have. People mm -hmm. who don't speak my language, people who don't have the same skin color, people from completely different socioeconomic background. Those connections that we made cross-culturally were phenomenally life-changing for, for all of us. Absolutely for all of us. If someone came to you and said, I'm thinking about doing this, besides just saying, oh, you've got to do it. What's some kind of like practical advice, you know, that you would give somebody to help them be successful at this as you have been? This is an intensely difficult lifestyle. It's actually not something that I think everybody is cut out for. I would say if you are already practicing simply living, Getting out of debt is a huge thing. If you can live within your means, if you can learn to live uh, a lot smaller, that's one of the important first steps. Um, if you've managed to do RV trips or something like that, where you kind of understand point A to point B in a small space, learning how to live with each other in a small space, then that's really good training for living on a boat. I would even recommend, I know it's kind of expensive, but if people are really interested in investigating the sailing lifestyle, I would say charter a sailboat somewhere, Florida Keys or Virgin Islands, where you can get a little bit of a picture of what it's like. Of course, on a vacation or for one week at a time, it's going to be hard. Um, but of course, there's like a million sailing blogs and there's lots and lots of YouTube families who, you know, are, are willing to be more public than we were. I'm, I'm married to an introvert who was very private. There's so nothing wrong with that. Um, and we were kind of pre-YouTube. So we did not post ourselves everywhere. But it's easy to find other families like like us and see a little bit what that lifestyle is like. Some people are, you know, very honest about the hard parts. Sure. It would be good not to go in with rosy colored glasses. Like everything breaks and it always breaks when you're in the middle of a storm and somebody's <laughs> throwing up at the same time. And like there's a lot of that. The the lows are very low, but the highs are very high. So it's an extreme kind of life where the, the the good things really make up for the bad things, but they're really, really good. And they're really, really bad. Yeah. Tanya, what's the next thing on your bucket list? Your personal one. 
Well, I have always wanted to cross the Pacific. And so someday, either, either on our boat or, you know, as crew on another boat, I would like to cross the Pacific Ocean. It's an immense space and an immense yeah. amount of water. So I'm also really scared of doing that. But I think it's, I think it's bucket list worthy. Yeah, for sure. Is there, is, would you start, where would you start and where would you end? That trip? Yeah. Uh, I think you pretty much have to go all the way around. So it starts at, um, at the Panama Canal and mm -hmm. you go through and you usually stop at Galapagos and then at the Marquesas and then in the South Pacific, French Polynesia. And then you kind of have to keep going. So, right. you know, the cross the Pacific thing would be maybe crew and then I would fly home. Um, otherwise, we might be committed to all the way around. Tanya, where can folks uh, get a hold of you or see your story? And you mentioned the book. Uh, where can we find that? Sure. We have been blogging since 2008, since we bought the boat. And that is at www.take2sailing.com. Take two is the name of our boat. And then uh, I wrote a book, which is not a duplicate of the blog. It's a collection of life lessons based on sailing idioms that we all use every day, but that have real deep meaning for me. And the name of that book is Leaving the Safe Harbor, The Risks and Rewards of Raising a Family on a Boat. And that published uh, about a year ago. Nice. Thank you so much for being here. I will put all those things in the show notes uh, so people can just click away and, and get to them right away. Tanya, thank you so much for sharing your experience. I'm, I'm glad it was a successful one and that nobody, you know, nobody got hurt. Those, those five little people got hurt and you can show as an example of that. Yes, you can do this. So I thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. Thank you so much. And we absolutely have no regrets and we would do it all again.